Welcome. I imagine some may still be coming in, but we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, I made my family come because I didn't know if anyone would be here, and so <laughs> wanted to at least have them here to uh, support support the cause. I do have, um, I like taking these evenings to give books away um, that are somewhat related to our, our theme. This is a book that I gave away uh, before as well, but James Davison Hunter wrote a book to change the world. Uh, this is a, it, a bit of a scholarly leaning um, read, but it's uh, a very valuable read. In fact, our pastoral team has uh, read this, reread this, and we're going to be discussing it at a team building retreat that we have in just a couple of uh, weeks. And so I've been in this book, but it is excellent on um, understanding uh, the politicization of our culture. It speaks to political idolatry in some really helpful ways and just helps to explain sort of this cultural moment. Um, so does anyone not have this and think you would read it and want it? Okay, great. Yes. Can you take this to Nathan for me? Yeah. If you could read that before our team building retreat, that'll, that would help. You can participate in the, uh, in the conversation. <laughs> it's perfect. I meant to get you a copy, so now you have it. Um, This book, Happy Christian by David Murray, is probably one you've heard us talk about before. Ten ways to be a joyful believer in a gloomy world. And one of the things that we really care about in our cultural engagement and in the Christian life in general is that we maintain uh, the, the biblical priority of joy. Because there are a lot of people who, when we consider this theme of, of uh, cultural engagement, the impulse, and in some ways is understandable, uh, can be to not be joyful, but to be angry, uh, and to be frustrated, and to be judgmental. And so, uh, in this book, and he actually divides the chapters, he has happy media, he talks about our news intake, happy church, and what it means for... Uh, uh, for, for the community of believers. He also has a chapter on happy work related to the whole series that, uh, that we've been doing recently on faith and work. And so um, who wants this book, The Happy Christian? David Murray, anyone read it? Yeah, great, here we go. And then uh, this is a book by Christopher Reeves, uh, Michael Reeves, sorry, who's one of my favorite authors. Michael Reeves, uh, he wrote a book called um, Gospel People. And then this was the sequel to it. So he's doing these short little books, but this is a delightful treatment of evangelical Pharisees, the gospel uh, as the cure for the church's hypocrisy. And so if you are a Pharisee, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm terrible at coming up with a category. So can, we have five copies of this. Can you raise your hand if you want one? And then Rob's going to hand those out. All right. And uh, keep coming back because there will be more books that you receive in the future. All right. Free books that we are giving away. All right, the plan that we have uh, for tonight, and thanks to each one of you for being here. Uh, I will, it's an hour and a half meeting. I will teach for around an hour, and then we will take 30 minutes uh, for questions. And so if you have questions at all throughout this evening or during the teaching, you can write those down, uh, and then you'll have an opportunity to ask them later. Renewing your mind comes from Romans 12, verse 2, which says... Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Um, is anyone here who hasn't been to a Renewing Your Mind meeting before? Just quick. Okay, great. Oh, fantastic. Thank you for being here. The, uh, let me just take time to remind all of us of the goal of these meetings. Why do we do this? Many Christians today, we believe, are more discipled by the world than by the word. 
and they are more influenced by cultural pundits than they are uh, local church pastors. And so as a church, we are wanting to bring a, a distinctly biblical Christian perspective to cultural matters that unbelievers won't have this same perspective. And we're wanting to equip Christians to think with discernment, uh, to hold these perspectives in a gracious and humble way rather than a combative and self-righteous one. And we want to approach these issues not through a political lens or in order to promote a particular political uh, party, but we want to approach these through a biblical lens and in order to promote the glory of Christ is our goal. And so the, the goal of renewing your mind, we have said, is equipping members of covenant fellowship to think biblically, to cultivate a Christian worldview, to engage culture in a distinctly Christian manner, to apply ethics, and to live all of life for the glory of Christ. Our topic, what we have done is uh, select particular topics that we address. What uh, our topic tonight is the church and the culture war. And what I'm wanting to do is rather than uh, select a more narrow or specific topic, I want to step back and examine the entire topic of Christian cultural engagement. And I want to provide a general framework for how we think about the relationship between the church and culture. Uh, the first heading on your outline is the rise of the culture war and the reasons for this teaching. I want to explain what it is that led to selecting this particular topic. The cultural events of the past 10 years have been significant and often concerning. It is understandable that we would be concerned about the direction of our culture and the pace of decline in various areas. In 2015, the Supreme Court redefined marriage for all 50 states. Uh, religious liberty is being threatened. Uh, there is the issue of the presidency of Donald Trump and how Christians should relate to him. Uh, we've seen the unjust deaths of African Americans, even through encounters with police, which has put a spotlight on America's race problem. And then the media has a tendency to stoke uh, the fires of conflict in these matters in ways that often make things worse. Uh, critical theory has grown in prominence with a set of mostly false and concerning ideas around uh, queer theory, post-colonial theory, critical race theory, and gender theory. At the same time, there has been a rise in nationalism and even uh, Christian nationalism and the rise of the alt-right, uh, these ideologies with, with nationalistic and ethnocentric overtones. There was the 2021 attack on our nation's capital by the far right, uh, challenging the orderly transition of power. Gender ideology is on the rise and is introduced to children in public schools and popular shows. Uh, transgenderism is damaging more and more people. The abortion debate has taken a prominent place in our culture with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. A global pandemic proved to be highly divisive and our political climate has become increasingly charged. That's the situation in which we are in. 
And it's the reason that we are wanting to uh, equip the church of Christ to think about these things. Many Christians who are rightly concerned about the direction of our culture want to think and respond in ways that honor the Lord, which is a beautiful and commendable thing. What does it mean to be a faithful follower of Christ in this cultural moment? The spirit of the age is combative. The spirit of the age is judgmental. Uh, The spirit of the age is partisan and idolatrous. We know that followers of Christ can't follow that path. But the question then becomes, what are we to do? And how are we to think? Are we to do nothing? Or are we to enter the culture wars and, and fight like everyone else? Or are we to do something else? Um, and, and there are a few trends that we see that are particularly concerning. One is that there are some Christians who are uncomfortable speaking to issues that represent conflict with the world. Um, if there is any particular topic in which we must stand against the pressures of culture and the pressures of our world. Uh, There are some Christians who say, well, let's just not talk about those particular um, issues. Let's not express disagreement in those ways. That, of course, is is the absence of courage and is a compromising of the truth. At the same time, and sort of on the other side of things, there has been... uh, a rise in the in sort of what I'm calling the culture war mentality um, among a number of Christians, and I've seen it in Christian leaders, and I've seen it especially in younger evangelicals. Trevin Wax uh, talks about this, um, and you'll see in your outline he wrote a series of uh, of blog posts on this topic. He says, "I see the resurgence of a neo-religious right." Uh, a return of the culture war mentality among many younger evangelicals who believe the need of the hour is for the church to jump into the fray of hardball politics and be bolder and louder in opposing leftward trends that are harmful to society. Um, so the fact that that, and what, what we make of that is part of the reason that he was writing those particular blog posts, but the fact that that is part of what is happening in this moment in evangelicalism, um, I think, is, uh, is obvious uh, to observe. And along with that, we've seen the rise of uh, sort of the anti-gentleness movement, the anti winsome movement uh, in which Christians and Christian leaders are being critiqued for being too soft, uh, being too gentle, and and lacking courage. All of this has led to debates among Christians uh, between cultural engagers and culture warriors. Cultural engagers who emphasize grace and winsomeness and affirmation, and then cultural warriors who emphasize courage and truth-telling and confrontation. Uh, in that arrangement, one group is vulnerable to, to discerning too little, and another group is vulnerable to fighting too much. But we're all seeking to explore what it means to honor Christ in our response. Another point that needs to be made is that cultural issues pose a significant threat to the unity of the church. It is not a theoretical threat, it is a very real threat. A lot of the culture warring I see is Christians fighting with other Christians. Here is the problem with those other Christians over there. 
is the posture among a lot of Christians. And there are think pieces and there are entire ministries and there are books being published that are devoted to saying, basically, here's why I thank God that I'm not like those Christians over there. Uh, Faithful pastors and faithful ministries are, are labeled woke. Tribalism is rampant in modern evangelicalism. And in an age where canceling is cool, um, Christians have taken to criticizing and canceling each other. What is really important for me as a pastor and for us as a pastoral team that the church understand, our church family, is to understand that this issue of the church and culture has become an explosive, polarizing, and potentially divisive issue. I think it's perhaps the case that we as a church are most vulnerable to not maintaining the unity of the Spirit in this very realm, in the realm of of various cultural issues. And I am eager to work with all of my energies and with all of my heart to, uh, to secure, to maintain, to promote the unity that Christ secured for us in his death so that our church family would remain uh, strong and healthy and unified no matter what happens in the world around us. And so that's some of the burden that comes from behind this. Now I want to ask the question, what kind of war are Christians called to? There is a battle, but it's not the battle that you might think. It is a spiritual battle And it is distinct from the cultural, political, ideological, and moral battles that are waged by a secular world. The Christian enemies are the flesh, the world, and the devil. And these are our enemies because they seek to draw us away from devotion to Christ and from faithfulness to him. There are several important passages that shed light on the the kind of war that we are called to. One is in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, where we learn that our greatest battle is the fight of the faith and the pursuit of godliness. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. There is a fight, there is a battle. It is the good fight of the faith. Uh, Ephesians 6 is another relevant passage here. Ephesians 6 verses Uh, 10 through 20 is that section uh, calling us to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and it introduces us to the warfare that each one of us is engaged in and reminds us of what our armor is. The point there is that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. What is the armor of God? The armor of God is not power and politics and rhetoric but it is the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the gospel of peace, the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit. Another passage is uh, 2 Corinthians 10. And this one's uh, fascinating, the language that is used in these verses uh, in, in verses three through six of 2 Corinthians 10. Paul says, for though we walk in the flesh, We are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare 
are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. The point of that passage, which is sometimes, and I've seen it used even recently, in support of Christians being called to engage in culture wars. Well, the point is that we are in a spiritual warfare with ecclesiological goals, with goals that are related to the church. Yes, so Paul uses the war metaphor, but what's he using it for? He's using it to describe his mission. Uh, The weapons of our warfare have divine power to destroy strongholds. Is he describing here his engagement with with culture more broadly? He's not. The battle is not to affect social change. It is to win the hearts of those in Corinth. It's to rescue sinners from lies. It is to build up the church. In other words, and, and all of the commentators point this out, 2 Corinthians 10 is a description of spiritual warfare with ecclesiological goals rather than political and cultural warfare with national goals. Also, it's striking, just a few verses earlier, Paul, Paul defends Christian meekness here. In verse 1, he says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And he says that though we live in the world, we don't wage war with human resources. Again, our weapons are not the weapons of this world. Not rhetoric, riches, political power. Our weapon is the power of the cross. And so it's imperative to understand that the, the focus of our warfare is not cultural. It is the preaching, defense, and application of the gospel to create a counterculture in the church of Jesus Christ. That will certainly have implications then for how this distinct cross-centered people of Christ engage the world around them. One more passage that I want to lay foundations in is in John 18, verses 33 through 40. And the point here is that we bear witness to a kingdom that is not of this world. In John 18 is where we see Jesus' confrontation with earthly power. Jesus is standing before Pilate. And this scene takes place in the military headquarters of the commanding officer of the Roman army. Pilate is concerned that Jesus may be a political threat. And Pilate was confused about the nature of Christ's kingdom. So Jesus responds to Pilate in a way that distinguishes his own kingdom from the kingdom that Pilate has in mind. Jesus says in verse 36 of John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, he was saying to Pilate, if you are concerned that I'm here to overthrow Roman rule, if you are concerned that I'm here to lead an insurrection, you do not understand my kingdom. I haven't come to set up armies. I haven't come to set up national laws and taxes. I have not come to amass wealth and to start a dynasty. I have not come to establish a kingdom that interferes with Roman rule. My kingdom is not of this world. And he says in verse 36, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Jesus is saying here, if I were seeking political rule, if that's the reason I came, if that's what I cared about, we would put up a fight. 
And guess what, Pilate? You would not win that fight. Uh, Peter took an ear off earlier in this same chapter. And Jesus could send legions of angels and make heads roll. But he says, my servants would have been fighting. I, I could raise up followers, he says, who rule the armies and governments of this world. My servants would have been fighting. But that is not why I've come. My kingdom, he says, is not like the kingdoms of this world. It's a kingdom in which we do not use the world's tactics. It is a kingdom that does not begin and is not defended by the power of this world, by military strength and earthly powers and money and laws. My followers, Jesus is saying, do not adopt the Roman warrior ethic, but the ethic of the cross I will endure. Think about the kingdom of this world. What does it rely on? It relies on force and violence and protesting and boycotting and rallying and grasping for power. Not all of those things are always bad, but Jesus is saying that his kingdom is not based on earthly power and protection. And what this means, one way you can think about this, the most important things that we long to see as a church cannot be accomplished by governments or by cultural power. The, most, the things that we most greatly desire and long to see as a church cannot be accomplished by governments or by cultural power. The government cannot save people from divine wrath. The government cannot forgive sin. The government cannot change the hearts of men and women or create worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So these passages, and there are others, are some of them that are foundational to the discussion of the kind of warfare that Christians are to be engaged in. Now, I do want to share a word on terminology here, and in fact, give a caution against the culture war metaphor. Uh, In light of these observations, I do believe Christians should be on guard against approaching the culture wars as the world around us does. Um, in, In fact, I would caution Christians to consider whether the idea of Christians engaging in a culture war is helpful terminology at all. I'm not here to play word police, depends what you mean by it, but as for me and my house, the very idea of of a, a culture war that Christians are called to engage in, I think, sets us off on the wrong track. Thaddeus Williams wrote a very helpful book called Infronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, He proposes that we permanently get rid of the culture war metaphor to describe how the church relates to culture. His concern is that the metaphor will unhelpfully influence our engagement. Specifically, that it moves us to battle the wrong enemy and to do so in the wrong way. If we're talking about the flesh and if we're talking about the devil, then war is appropriate. But when it comes to a hostile world, even people who oppose us, even people who persecute us and have agendas that will harm us, what does Jesus command? Well, Jesus commands us to love our enemies. He doesn't command us to love Satan. He doesn't command us to love the flesh. He does call us to love our enemies. And so Thaddeus Williams says, we need to permanently jettison the culture war metaphor as the church moves into the future. The culture war metaphor has a profound often subconscious effect on how we go about obeying Jesus's commission. There's a song that we sing by, uh, by Keith and Kristen Getty, O Church Arise. And I love when we sing that song together as a church. It has this line, our call to war, so there is a call to war, 
our call to war to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. That's the call to war. So when it, when it comes to the captive soul, we are not looking to rage against them. We're not seeking to destroy them or take them out or own them. We're called to love them. And that includes, yes, speaking the truth, but it includes doing so, that is, speaking the truth in a way that is Christ-like and that is, quite frankly, decidedly unwarlike. Second uh, Timothy 2, 24 through 26 gives this picture of unbelievers as being ensnared captives who need to be met with kindness and gentle correction as the means through which they will be liberated. Um, that through being kind to all and correcting opponents with gentleness, that perhaps God will lead some to repentance and to their liberation. Is our posture toward unbelievers supposed to be warlike? On the contrary, God calls us to live peaceably with all, Romans twelve eighteen, to speak evil of no one, Titus 3, verse 2, and to be kind to everyone, 2 Timothy 2.24. One other voice that has helped me, Carl Truman, he wrote a book, Strange New World. He says that the language of cultural protest is better than the language of culture war and that the church protests the wider culture primarily by, not by critiquing the surrounding culture, but by offering a positive vision of life. He talks about how the Greek apologists such as Justin Martyr addressed the Roman Empire from a Christian perspective in the midst of a hostile culture. But he says, what's so interesting when compared to some of the ways many Christians, right and left, do so today, is how respectful these ancient apologists were. There are so many Christians taking in voices that are fundamentally disrespectful and unchristian. And it's influencing Christian voices and Christian engagement in the church. What's striking, Truman says, is how respectful these ancient apologists were. They did not spend their time denouncing the evils of the emperor and his court. Rather, they argued positively that Christians made the best citizens, the best parents, the best servants, the best neighbors, the best employees, and that they should thus be left alone and allowed to carry on with their day-to-day lives without being harassed by the authorities. Some might respond that failing to engage in aggressive and direct confrontation looks rather like defeatism and withdrawal. But is it? I am not here calling for a kind of passive quietism whereby Christians abdicate their civic responsibilities or make no connection between how to pursue those civic responsibilities and their religious beliefs. I am suggesting rather that engaging in cultural warfare using the world's tools, rhetoric, and weapons is not the way for God's people. All right, engaging in cultural warfare using the world's tools and rhetoric and weapons is not the way for God's people. Now, let me talk some about models of of cultural engagement. Christians are called to be a faithful presence in the world, and this will look different depending on a range of different factors. Uh, There's been a lot of thought that's been given to this throughout uh, the history of Christ's church, the whole question of, of Christ and culture. And how is it that the church ought to relate to the broader culture? And uh, the, the best thinkers recognize that, that the church 
in how it relates to culture will look different based off of the particular historical and cultural setting that it finds itself in. So for example, you have um, someone like the Dutch neo-Calvinist Abraham Kuyper, who was uh, strong in his convictions of, uh, of, of Christ transforming the surrounding culture. Uh, he not only basically was involved in, in, uh, in leading a denomination, but also uh, carried a particular governmental rule, was involved in teaching in a school and other things. His vision of Christ transforming culture uh, was significant. Uh, D.A. Carson points out that that Kuyper's views of, of Christ and culture would likely look a lot different if, for example, he was pastoring in, say, the killing fields of Cambodia or in some setting in which the church is greatly persecuted. Uh, the way that the church will relate to the broader culture will look different based off of its particular historical setting. James Davidson Hunter, I mentioned his book earlier, uh, in that book, uh, he says that there are three primary paradigms or models of cultural engagement. I want us to think about these here tonight. They are defensive against, relevance to, and purity from. And he points out that they're not mutually exclusive, but they do describe a general orientation and impulse. And I think each one of these sort of resonates with uh, most believers I identify most strongly with one of those impulses. And that's not entirely bad. Defensive against means that we need to resist the assault of secularism, uh, which is often, by those who are defensive against, seen to be the main problem in the world. We need to stand against secularism. We need to stand against liberalism and so on. We need to launch uh, a direct and frontal attack against the enemies of the faith. Defensive against is that particular uh, cultural model. Another one is relevance to. And what relevance to means is that we need to be sensitive to seekers. Uh, we need to be connected to the pressing issues of our day. We need to emphasize common ground. Uh, we need to be compassionate. We need to strive to be as relevant as possible. Relevance to build bridges, highlight common ground. You see how that's different than defensive against uh, as a, a model and a posture. And then the third uh, model, purity from, means that we need to separate ourselves. Uh, it's been described recently as the Benedict option. Uh, the priority is to remain pure and distinct, even if that means a degree of disengagement from the world, separating ourselves, purity from. Now those three, defensive against, relevance to, and purity from, this is what Hunter says about these. In sum, all three paradigms capture something important to the experience, life, identity, and witness of the church. The concern to be relevant to the world, defensive against the world, and pure from the world, all in certain ways, speaks to authentic biblical concerns. Yet the desire to be relevant to the world so here's some critique. Yet the desire to be relevant to the world has come at the cost of abandoning distinctiveness. The desire to be defensive against the world is rooted in a desire to retain distinctiveness, but this has been manifested in ways that are, on the one hand, aggressive and confrontational, and on the other, culturally trivial and inconsequential. Finally, the desire to be pure from the world has entailed a disengagement and withdrawal from active presence in huge areas of social life. 
all want to engage the world faithfully, yet all pursue that end in ways that minimize the inherent tension that comes with being ones who are called to be in the world, but not of it. There are inherent tensions in that reality that we are in the world, but not of it. Hunter says, my point is not that these paradigms of engagement are equally problematic, but rather that none seems to be fully a fully adequate way of making sense of or pursuing faithfulness in our world. And then he says, over against these paradigms, I would offer an alternative, faithful presence within, is the, the, the category that he gives. So you may, and there are tensions involved in that. You may find it to be that uh, your own instincts line up more with defensive against. We need to speak out more courageously or uh, more... Uh, relevant to that we need to you know the 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 leading goal when i bring an unbeliever to church is i'm just hoping that there's nothing said that is going to be offensive uh you know to them uh or that's going to land on them in in an unhelpful way you know the, the desire is is to emphasize that relevance too well there are tensions at work and and all of these realities are a part of this faithful presence Jeremiah 29, which Mark talked about in his sermon this morning, actually provides a really good example of this kind of of faithful presence. In Jeremiah 29 is when the Israelites were taken into captivity in Babylon. A thousand miles from home, it was uh, this great low point, the Babylonian exile taken into captivity. Uh, And in, in Jeremiah 29... The people knew that they would be there several generations, but God's counsel that we see, and it's in Jeremiah 29 verses 4 through 7, God's counsel is that they settle in for the long term, that they seek the welfare of Babylon. He, he calls them to build houses, plant gardens, marry and have children, seek the welfare of the city. Now this is in Babylon. So you can see there that the, they were not primarily defensive against They were not primarily isolated from. They were not primarily absorbed into the dominant culture, but they were faithfully present within it. And we are in the exact same situation. For us, the goal is not to take back culture. The goal is not to make America great again. The goal is not to win the culture wars or to save Western civilization. That approach removes what is distinct in our Christian witness. It's striking, we also learn in in Jeremiah that the hope of God's people was not that they would make Babylon a great place to live through their own labors, but that that the city of man is not our home and will one day be no more. They knew that our hope is not social transformation. Our hope is the arrival of God. They knew that God would come and deliver them, which he did 70 years later. And our hope is the same, that God himself will come. Not that we will be the agents of of reforming society, uh, of making Babylon something other than Babylon, but that we will be salt and light in the world as we wait for the arrival of God who alone makes all things new. This vision of cultural engagement, and I pray that the church is deeply shaped by it, Will, will cause the church of Christ to be radically distinct from the, from the world around us and from some large parts of Christendom today. This is the same vision that, uh, that is in keeping with what the Apostle Peter says in the New Testament in 1 Peter. 
And we preached through 1 Peter not too long ago, but I, I encourage you, especially in this cultural moment, and if you are one who, who is concerned about the direction of our culture and even fears what the future means for your children, live in the book of 1 Peter. You can read it quickly in one sitting. The church there was slandered, chapter 2, verse 12. They were insulted, chapter 2, verse 23. And they suffered unjustly, mentioned virtually every chapter after chapter 1. And in the midst of this cultural opposition, in the midst of this hostility, what does Peter tell them? How should they respond? Should they fight back? What do we do as Christians? Storm the capital? Own the libs? Call the other side a basket of deplorables. Take people out with disrespectful words and, and insults. Vent your anger. Give into fear. No, what does Peter do? Study First Peter. Be informed by this reality. Peter reminds the church that we are exiles in the world. Chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 11. We are to live our lives as strangers in reverent fear of the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 17. We are to... Chapter 2, verse 12, conduct ourselves honorably among the world, even when they oppose us. In chapter 2, verse 13, he calls them, be subject to the Lord's sake, to every human institution. And he mentions the emperor and the governor. Chapter 2, verse 17, he calls them to submission and honor, even when they are mistreated. Honor everyone, honor the emperor. In chapter 3, verse 8, he commands them to have sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. What about when we are wronged? What about when we are mistreated? 1 Peter 3, verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. When you speak to outsiders to defend the truth, chapter 3, verse 15, Do it with gentleness and respect. Faithfully following a suffering Savior, be a faithful presence where God has placed you. That needs, first Peter needs to inform our vision and approach to engaging the surrounding world. I want to mention here two dangers to avoid. One, avoid a posture that is exclusively relevant to. This mistake is, is, is to compromise, to soften the truth, especially unpopular truths. Softening them for the sake of seeking to be winsome. Um, can't we just talk about Jesus and not mention this or that particular issue? The problem with that approach is that we will fail to preach the whole counsel of God. We need to, to, to speak where God has spoken. And there are Christians who don't like it when, when cultural lies are identified and disagreed with. But I would say that this is part of the whole model of Scripture. The identifying of lies. The identifying of wrong ways of thinking. If we are only affirming culture and never correcting culture, we will not be able to be faithful. And so you want some of that defensive against in in the approach to cultural engagement. Christopher Watkin, I read something uh, from him in Biblical Critical Theory that resonated deeply with me. He says a hermeneutic of love, so there is this great priority of love, but a hermeneutic of love is not a curate's egg, uh, a British term for something uh, partly good, partly bad. 
an exercise in finding and affirming the good, however slight and well hidden it may be. That's not what love means. He says, we are not to get to the end of Hitler's Mein Kampf and praise its vivid metaphors. If that's how you approach life, you're missing it. To assume that love always affirms is a modern heresy of charity, not the biblical pattern. And so there are some who need to hear that, who need to hear a caution against avoiding a posture that is exclusively relevant to. Second danger, avoid a posture that is exclusively defensive against. This is sort of the Christ against culture. And it may be the the greater uh, danger in, in our day. Faithful engagement is more than criticism. Protecting and defending and criticizing will be a necessary gesture at times, but those are unhelpful as a primary stance for the believer to take. And when we do critique and contend, there is a positive goal of promoting the truth and of winning other people to Christ. Hear that, the goal is not to win an argument. The goal is to win people to Christ. A healthy church will be known more for what they are for than what they are against. One way of thinking about this is that we need to avoid some of the mistakes of fundamentalism. Regarding fundamentalism, uh, D.A. Carson says that too much of their cultural engagement is reactive. Fundamentalists spot directions being taken by the broader culture that they feel are immoral or dangerous and adopt strategies to confront them and, if possible, overturn them. At the risk of generalization, he says, they are relatively effective at combating what they do not like in the culture, even while exhibiting relatively little interest in the ways one should support the culture working into the worlds of art and music. Moreover, fundamentalists tend to address a select list of evils, abortion, homosexuality, secularism working its way into school curriculum and the like, and ignore a much broader list of social evils. Uh, Carson affirmatively quotes uh, Jean Beethke Alstein, a woman who was uh, an, an American philosopher, a Christian, She says, as a standalone posture against too often turns into brittle condemnation, a stance of haughty, presumed moral superiority, wagon circled. That's what against alone leads to. Transform on its own may degenerate into naive idealism, even utopianism. Avoiding these extremes, we must see Christ against and for, antagonistic and affirming, arguing and embracing. This is complex, but then Christianity is no stranger to complexity. There's one resource that I want to make you aware of. We've discussed this as pastors and wives, and I have returned to it and read it on numerous occasions. A valuable article where he gives a helpful schema of of four approaches to race, politics, and gender. It's a fascinating article because, and it's even titled, Why Reformed Evangelicalism Has Splintered. Four Approaches to Race, Politics, and Gender. And what he does is is identifies these four different approaches. Each approach identifies a distinct need of the hour that is reflective of particular cultural sensibilities. The four categories that he gives are contrite, compassionate, careful, and courageous. And he numbers each one. So the one is, is contrite, and then compassionate, and then careful, and then courageous. So you can put in any particular topic, you know, gender. 
Okay, when we talk about gender contrite, we need to humbly acknowledge the ways that women have been mistreated and abused. We need to see uh, some of the good that has come through the Me Too movement. We need to confess our own sins. We need to lead the way with with contrition. We need to see the way that gender distortions and stereotypes uh, have plagued and have often come from Christians and have done damages, uh, done damage to Christian families and, and so on. Some people, that's going to be their, their impulse. And then a four is courageous. We need to speak against the erosion of biblical complementarianism and gender. We need to take our stand. We need to speak boldly and courageously. The truth. Come, you see, those are different impulses. They're not necessarily even disagreeing with each other in content. But the, the emphasis on what is communicated uh, is, is quite different. De Young says that it's the ones and the fours that tend to be the loudest and most separatist voices. It's the, the contrite and the courageous. So uh, they're the ones that fill Twitter, uh, you know, and fill social media. It's, it's those extremes are what you're going to get there. While the twos and the threes you know, compassionate and careful in terms of a primary instinct, um, are more likely to appeal to unity, which he says can make them sound too squishy for either end of the spectrum. He uh, himself identifies in, in the, the middle of that, in the three, the, the, the careful um, category. And so I can appreciate that as one who has been critiqued as being too squishy uh, from both ends of the, uh, of the spectrum. But what I appreciate about that is that he gives each one a positive title as well. We do want to be contrite. We do want to be compassionate. We do want to be careful. We do want to be courageous. Um, And I think that that way, I I commend that article to you. It's a fascinating treatment. He walks through what it means for a range of different issues in terms of those those differing instincts. But I think that that explains uh, some of the the places at which unity can be strained among among Christians. Um, The last heading then here, is uh, truths that guide the church in relating to the culture war. Uh, What are some of the, I want to consider, what are some of the categories that should control our thinking when it comes to matters of cultural engagement? And I have five of these that we'll move through here uh, somewhat quickly. First, the centrality of the gospel. The importance of this cannot be overstated, that Christ must remain our greatest passion and our source of unity. Um, we, we don't want to become fo- so focused on specific threats to the gospel that we fail to remain centered on the gospel and on the riches of salvation that we have in Christ. We talk a lot about gospel centrality. It's so important that we not check out when we hear that said. The gospel is the good news that the eternal son of God took on flesh and came into this world. He was born and lived a perfect life. He died in the place of sinners, absorbing the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. And he rose from the dead on the third day, victorious over sin and death and hell, to give new life, eternal life, and peace with God to all who will believe in him, to all who will repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. This is the message of the gospel. It is the message of salvation. And we talk a lot about it because we're prone to wander from it. Um, To be centered on the gospel means we want to deepen our knowledge of the gospel. It's good to deepen your knowledge of many things in this world. The thing you should be deepening your knowledge of most is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the riches of the love of God for sinners. Um, 
To be centered on the gospel means we are most passionate about the gospel. It is so easy, friends, to assume the gospel. Well, of course, yeah, of course I'm most passionate about that. But are you? Is that what your emotions show? Is that what your communication shows? What is your point of greatest passion? To be centered on the gospel means we are most passionate about the gospel. It does not work to assume the gospel and then to spend all of our days talking about secondary, cultural, political issues. Be most passionate about Christ and him crucified. And to be centered on the gospel means, and hear this, it means we are united around the gospel. We are not united around ethnicity, class, or politics. I love what Mark Dever, who, who serves a church in Washington, D.C., and it is a politically diverse church, as you can imagine, what he tells his church, the Jesus we share is more important than the politics we don't. The Jesus we share is more important than the politics that we don't share. And so even when we disagree on other things, we remain united in Christ and we, and we know that the basis of our unity is not those other things, but it is Christ alone. And in fact, being centered on the gospel means we gladly leave room for Christians to disagree with us on certain cultural matters of less importance. Okay, it's okay to be in a church or to have close Christian friends where you may disagree on particular cultural issues because that's not the main thing. The main thing is Jesus Christ and his glory, the centrality of the gospel. Second is the authority of the word. Hold fast to the whole word and know when to leave room for disagreement. So there's sort of two parts of that. The obligation that we have is to preach and hold fast to the whole counsel of God. We must not be selective, but rather we must be comprehensive in delighting in and applying the whole of God's word, the authority of the word of God that governs our lives and our thoughts as we think God's thoughts after him. At the same time, we need to understand not everything is equally important. Not everything is a hill to die on. And not everything is equally clear. A black and white issue. And here's something. Scripture does not give exhaustive information on every question, every subject, and every decision. Um, you won't, through studying your Bible, learn how to cook a particular meal. Um, The Bible is not a policy manual or a political platform. So here's the distinction. There is a crucial distinction between a clear word from the Lord and complex social and political matters. That distinction is so crucial. Uh, Because there are those who take complex social and political matters and want to put them in the category of a clear word from God and the authority of scripture when that's not the category where those things belong. So, for example, when it comes to questions about the minimum wage, immigration policy, environmental policy, taxes, reparations, national health care, COVID vaccines party affiliation, political strategy, school choices, and much, much more. 
I could go on at length here in listing these things. We need to have room for Christians to examine the issue, to follow their consciences, and to arrive at differing conclusions. If you, if you tend to see everything as a black and white issue or a hill to die on, you're not going to be able to handle scripture wisely or navigate culture wisely. In, in complex social, political, and ethical issues on which there is no clear word from God. Where we have a clear word from God, you have our word. And I hope and pray we are faithful and you will hear it from this pulpit. That we will speak the clear word of the Lord. But in complex issues on which there is no clear word from God. Well, Christians, please don't misunderstand. Christians are right and it's appropriate to have opinions and even convictions that are held in humility. But when it comes to those things, pastors in their official capacity, bound as we are by the word of God, there's a gap between my own private opinions and what I preach from the pulpit. I hope you realize that. I'm not just going to stand and share all my opinions. That's not what the, the, the role of the preacher is. The, the preacher must be bound by the word of God. And we as pastors in our office as pastors are bound by the word of God. And where there is no clear word, we are wise to remain silent altogether. This is why we as a church talk so little about politics. All the elders agree that the church should be very slow to speak to current political controversies and disputable matters. Be clear on the authority of God's word and what the boundaries of the authority of God's word are. Third category is the mission of the church. Maintain a sense of the priority of the church and the distinct calling of the church. The priority of the church means the best things Christians can do in the realm of cultural engagement. If you want to know how, how do I get started as a Christian on cultural engagement, the best thing you can do is join a local church and practice committed membership. That's the best thing that you can do. And that is because the church is the most important institution and the only enduring institution in the entire world. Mark Dever says the nation is an experiment, the church is a certainty. We certainly care about the health of the nation, but we care even more about the health of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, when I talk about this category of the distinct calling of the church, this is, it's a theological category. You guys are doing a great job hanging in there tonight, by the way. Um, there's something to understand here about the church as an institution. The mission of the church as an institution is distinct from the responsibilities and callings of the individual Christian. So individual Christians can and should, to differing degrees, be active in various forms of engaging the culture through art, music, philosophy, business, participating in the economic, political, and social development of society, reforming societal structures, and so on. They will. Be, so please don't misunderstand. Uh, the, the organic church of Christ, as it is spread throughout the world, represented in individual Christians, will be involved in education, healthcare, politics, science, and more. You'll hear us say as pastors, um, as we often and repeatedly did through COVID in particular, that we are not experts in particular things. When we say we're not experts in particular things, and that we're not called to be experts in, them, that certainly does not mean that Christians should not involve themselves in those things. It does mean that the church as an institution does not bear primary responsibility for those things. And it's really important that individual Christians in the church 
respect the distinct call of the church as an institution and not insist that the church do more uh, to address a particular cause or area of engagement and service that they have been called to as individual believers. The church may do so, but the church has the freedom to not do so because there's a distinction between the essential tasks of the church and those that are optional. The mission of the church as an institution, what are we about? Why do we exist? Well, it can be rightly summarized by our responsibility to preach the word and make disciples. We exist to treasure Christ, to grow in grace, and to proclaim the gospel. Treasure, grow, proclaim. That's our mission. It's what we are all about. In other words, the church is concerned primarily with spiritual and heavenly realities. We have a focused mission in this world, a mission not established by cultural pressures and trends, but by the word of God. And so the implication is that we should not assume that every particular area of cultural good or justice in society should have organized action from the church as an institution. That would be far more than the church can bear. It would take us beyond our authority and expertise as pastors. It would marginalize the ministry of the word and the centrality of the gospel. I, as a pastor, rejoice that there is simplicity and clarity in my mission and in my calling. I am called to seek to be an expert here in this book as a minister of the word and to to teach and preach the word of God and to apply it uh, in the lives of the people of God. That's the mission of the church. Two more, the fruit of the spirit. Here I just want to exhort us to prioritize the biblical commands of love, joy, peace, and more. You're familiar with the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Each one of those qualities should be considered as we engage a broader world. When we engage with those who mistreat us or those who are wrong, we do not have the freedom to remove ourselves from the fruit of the spirit that God requires of us. The peace, the patience, the kindness, the gentleness that God calls us to. Colossians three twelve through 14 is a similar text that calls us to these qualities, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness. Are you quarrelsome? Do you have a critical spirit? Are you suspicious? Do you assume the worst of others? Do you use words to tear others down? Is your heart actions and words removed, is your heart at a place that it is marked by these qualities? This is essential to faithful engagement. The command of 1 Corinthians 16, 14, do everything in love, means that Christian cultural engagement should be marked by love. And at times, the best thing we can do is just read some of these particular verses that describe what the Christian life is to be. The wisdom from above in James chapter 3. That's first pure What does it look like to be wise as we engage the world? Well, it's first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. It's striking that both Paul and Peter emphasize the importance of speech toward outsiders that is marked by gentleness and graciousness. Colossians 4 verse 6, let your speech always be gracious. Does that mean sometimes? No. Let your speech always be gracious. Be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And in 1 Peter 3, verse 16, is that command 
to speak to outsiders with gentleness and respect. Our culture, and it's a sad thing, but there's an opportunity embedded in this that our culture is so marked by divisiveness and outrage and pride. Jesus calls us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, real enemies that do real harm. I was reminded of, in thinking about these qualities in the fruit of the Spirit, Charleston, South Carolina in 2015 when Dylan Roof went on a racist shooting spree that left nine black image bearers dead at Emmanuel Church. How does a Christian respond? Roof tried to start a race war. But the relatives of the victims, and I encourage you if you haven't to read their, their comments and their responses, it included a daughter of one person who died, it included a son of one person who died, and other relatives spoke profound words of love and forgiveness even as they grieved. This is how we represent Christ in the world. This is how we display the fruit of the Spirit even as we long for the justice of God. I think that our shaping virtues in sovereign grace, if you know that and have that as a category, humility, encouragement, joy, and so on, they have a certain effect. They have the effect, John Piper calls it, taking the swagger out of Christian cultural influence. I think that's really good. Like, you, you can drop the swagger uh, when it comes to Christian cultural influence. And in contrast to some on the right and on the left, we must engage respectfully and graciously, not aggressively or combatively. Uh, Our goal as a pastoral team is not to call people to participate in the culture war, but rather to be a faithful presence in the midst of a world of godlessness and strife. Think about just one, think about humility in our cultural engagement and what that means. It's one of the reasons I gave out the book on evangelical Pharisees. Because if we're not a humble people, we will not be effective in our cultural engagement. Humility remembers that the greatest threat is not the world. Remember the story of G.K. Chesterton being asked by a publication to respond to the question, what's wrong with the world today? He's asked, what's wrong with the world today? I wonder how you would answer that question. His answer was, dear sirs, I am, period. My greatest problem is not out there, it is in me. That's humility. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he was writing from a Nazi uh, prison camp and was captive to those responsible for concentration camps and a world war, he wrote this. This is in Letters and Papers from Prison, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, nothing that we despise in the other man is entirely absent from ourselves. Nothing we despise in the other man is entirely absent in ourselves. That's humility. That's the voice of of humility. I could talk about joy and other qualities as well, but let me move on. Uh, One more point related to the fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness, humility, love, it's not a political strategy. Um, Our position is not, this is how to gain political power and transform culture. The reason that, that's the wrong start, that's not our starting point at all. The reason that we are gentle and humble is not pragmatic. It's not because it works. It may make a difference. It may not. But we, we value these things because they are biblical and commanded by God as not being optional. Well, one last heading, the return of Christ. Set your hope fully in the Lord's return and not in our own efforts. Our great hope is not 
our own efforts. Our efforts will not usher in the kingdom of Christ. Our efforts will not create the new heavens and the new earth. Our efforts will not bring an end to the groaning of this world or wipe away every tear. We, we need to understand the limitations of what we can accomplish in this world, even through our greatest efforts. We cannot make this world whole and complete. We cannot bring worldwide peace. You know, th- I was thinking about this. We can do nothing to entirely remove the presence of sin and suffering from our lives. Create whatever utopia you want in a fallen world. It will not be free from the reality of sin and from suffering. We can do nothing about the great enemy of shalom that is death. We can do nothing to resurrect our bodies. We can do nothing to usher in the new heavens and the new earth or to make God dwell with us as our God or to see him face to face. Jesus alone is the Prince of Peace and that is why our hope is in him. That is why we await the return of the King who alone brings the blessings of Shalom. We are Titus 2.13 waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.13 calls us to set your hope fully, not partially, not a little bit of hope here, a little bit of hope there, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what fills our witness with gladness and with praise because we know the end of the story. The evil of this world will not triumph. Christ will come on a war. You want to talk about a war? Christ is coming again in judgment. And when he does, we will be glorified, and we will reign with him forever. Romans 16 verse 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That day is coming. Christopher Watkins says this, and he's speaking of this theme of praise. A major distinctive of a Christian way of being in the world is that sooner or later, everything ends with praise. To be sure, I'm not claiming that the Christian life is characterized by a constant sickly sweet smile, There's plenty of room in the Bible for anger, lament, heartache, puzzlement, frustration, and determination. But when anger is spent, when puzzles have been solved, when frustrations have melted away, and when mourning, crying, and tears have ceased, then the needle turns to the eschatological true north of praise, a doxological delight in the God of superabundant grace. It should be a distinctive of Christian cultural theory that it share this doxological center of gravity, not merely analyzing and arguing, but also praising the God of creation and redemption. Calling Christians to faithful cultural engagement is a lot different than calling them to participation in the culture wars. May God help us in our cultural witness to be faithful, to be courageous, to be humble, to be distinct, to be unified as his people and to be filled with hope as we await his glorious return. Amen. We want to take your questions, but I did come up with a few as Jared was teaching. Uh, And so, Jared and Jim. I have a question. For you guys. Oh, all right. Well, just, Jared just, and Jim, do you have questions for us? Well, I want to make sure that this. I want to make sure this gets out because uh, 
it's been a it's been a pleasantly full couple of weeks for me and so I didn't get eyes on this particular uh, teaching that I did but I want you guys to hear is there anything in what I said that you think oh I hope people didn't take this this way by way of clarification addition um, burden just this as well that's on your heart as you're listening because I'm sure that I would agree with whatever burden you guys have and if nothing comes to mind then great but I wanted to make sure that you thank you yeah that you I, speak that. I thought you did a an I mean, I'm not looking for you guys up. to evaluate no. how I did, you know, but, but, uh, but any thoughts my, you have? My critiques are good, okay. here. Good. I'm now, eager to hear those later. Now, <laughs> you, I thought you did a, an excellent job. Um, uh, one thought that occurred to me is you were listing the different, like, purity from defensive against relevance, too. I think we hear a lot about the defensive against, you know, and I think a lot of what you shared was addressing that and the posture that we want to take. And that's a lot of what we hear on Twitter, a lot of what we see out there. I wonder if one of the challenges for our church might also be, or maybe even more, the purity from and a shrinking back away from the culture and a I sometimes call this, and I think about this a lot evangelistically, is the Christian nest and kind of the comfortable bubble of Christianity that prevents us that we're too scared to engage. You have loud people that are engaging, but do we have a majority that are not engaging? And a couple verses that I I think about a lot in this is just, um, I've been reading just in Matthew 10, just how there's so much persecution and there's just these verses or Jesus like, I'm sending you out a sheep among wolves and you will be hated by all. And I, I'm like, oh my goodness, like this is how it's supposed to be. Or, you know, we might think of 2 Timothy 3 where all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I think about that and I think, why aren't we being persecuted? Because a lot of us really aren't being persecuted. And I think that sometimes it might be because we're afraid to share the gospel. We should not be persecuted because of our character. We should be persecuted because of the truth that we share. So sometimes I wonder if we're too afraid to engage with the truth. And that's probably a different message than what you're addressing, but that was just a thought that I had. Yes, very good and and very much related. I mentioned in passing, you know, the Benedict option, but that was a book that came out. It's pretty much like things have gotten so bad that let's just, withdraw into our it's actually a you know a, a a model of cultural engagement to just say let's just withdraw withdraw and seek to do all of our own things and it fails to engage the world as it ought i don't have anything to add Good. yeah except my questions um guys what symptoms might you see in a follower of christ who's at risk of not being most passionate about the gospel. Like how would we how would we look in a mirror? What would we see if the gospel has fallen out of center? The thing that comes to mind to me and for me and this is something of what I mentioned, but the category of, of what we get most emotionally worked up about and um, and who we're we're most likely to see as sort of the other you know, and, and them. Um, 
So yeah, I think that, that those categories, it's, if, if we find that we're at a place where we are most worked up, most emotionally engaged, most angry at this particular, you know, or even when we think of what, what we're most fearful for, what group are we most concerned, it ought to be unbelievers who are far from God and are in need of his, of his grace. That should be uh, the, the, the point at which our hearts are most engaged for gospel people. All right, how should we think about well-known, I just have two more and then we'll kick it open to the floor. How should we think about well-known Christians who have blogs and radio shows and podcasts that engage as culture warriors, perhaps disrespectfully or divisively? How should we think about those? Should we even be listening to them? I don't listen to them. <laughs> don't, don't listen to them. I mean, the, the thing that concerns me, like I, I think so much about the gospel and just the, the neediness, people who are lost and dying and hurting. And I was just talking to somebody out in the lobby, just they're not Christians and they're coming and God's drawing them, but the anxiety and the just crippling and just wanting to see the gospel set people free. And I've seen that so many times, like it's just, it's so central in like what, what I want to see happen. And the concern I have is the way that that damages our witness. Like I find that we have to do so much backpedaling and trying to undo stereotypes and like, no, this is not what I'm saying. No, we're not this. No, I don't mean this. No, we're not political in that. No. Like before we have to go back so far before we start going forward. That's always my concern is it harms the witness of the church and our ability to engage the culture in a way that is winsome or we don't have, I, I'm spending a lot of time working to undo stereotypes and caricatures and it would be easier if we didn't have to do that and those things don't help. So that's what I would say. Yeah, we, we become, I, th I think sometimes we don't realize how influenceable we are and how much we become like what we take in. We think that we're objective and we just listen to, th and I can listen to this person's voice, you know, every day and not, no, that, that's going to deeply shape me. If there's someone whose sermons I'm listening to each week or a podcast I'm listening to, it's going to have an effect on me. And so that's where the, the, the manner of engagement from people matters. Uh, I think it's good to give a caution about the limitations of social media. And, uh, and for us to understand the, just the, the limitations of that context. I would also say as a point, uh, because um, it can be easy to respond to seemingly judgmental people in a judgmental way. And I look to intentionally, as I look at other Christian leaders or pastors, recognize I don't know what their particular cultural setting is. And it may be that they are leading their congregation in a way that's giving exactly what is needed given their particular cultural setting. You know, there may be ways in which John MacArthur's setting in California and his church is different than Tim Keller in New York City. And... Uh, and so though a Keller model is going to be more relevant to in his approach and a MacArthur is going to be more defensive uh, against, I don't want to, uh, I want to be slow to judge. I think there's so much judgment and tribalism in the evangelical world of, oh, look at the wrong way this person is doing that. It may be what their church 
needs. Um, and our concern as pastors is what's our cultural setting? What does our church need? What does it mean for us to be faithful um, where God has, God has placed us? Good. This isn't so much a question, but the very last note I typed was perhaps a word directly about Christian nationalism. Why don't you take it, Rob? No, because Jared did the teaching. You have a lot to say about this. I just talked for an yeah, hour. No. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I just wonder. We, it, it got referenced in the in the message, and uh, there are some popular conversations happening around Christian nationalism. And I just it would be good for you to hear, perhaps from our team, just a word or two on it. Um, if you were to take the last hour and apply it to that conversation of Christian nationalism, your takeaway should probably be we're not pro-Christian nationalism in trying to make sure that all, that the culture is conformed uh, to Christianity in a way that imposes texts out of context and presses them into secular society as though uh, the goal of the church is to make every nation it's within a Christian nation. Uh, the, the whole yeah. emphasis yeah. on citizens of another kingdom, my kingdom is not of this world, that whole emphasis of placing our hope there should be the, the thing that detaches us from hope in Christian nationalism. Yeah. Do you want to add yeah, anything I to that? A couple thoughts. I'm sorry, were you going to say no, something? No. Yeah, I think there's some good in it in terms of wanting to engage culture. There's a right impulse there, but I think it just goes way too far. I think that government is designed to protect us from encroachment and protect our freedoms. That was a huge part of what the founders were doing. That's why freedom is so front and center. It's not to provide services and get the government to do things and shape it in a way that serves all of the Christian needs. And so one of the things I heard recently on this was just um, that the church, as the church is weakening in its influence, so we see that over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years where we're not in arts, entertainment, education, we're kind of being pushed out of all of these areas, um, it feels like Christians are saying, okay, politics is the last thing we have, and we got to put all of our eggs in that basket, and so we are just, and I think this is dangerous, we're one election away mm-hmm. from deliverance and providing the kind of Christian environment, no, we're not, and mm-hmm. we're also not one election away from utter disaster yeah. and Christianity falling apart and the church falling apart. And so it puts all of those eggs in that political basket. And I think we just have to realize um, it's because we're being marginalized. And so it's that there's a fight impulse to that. But I just, we have to remember who we're following. We're following a crucified Savior that picked up his cross and he climbed that hill called Calvary and he laid down his life. And that's who we're following here. So I, I, that was just a thought that that's I cool. had on that. Yeah, Jim's comment there on we're not one election away in either direction is not political analysis. It's gospel truth. Yeah. Yeah. 
right? It's not a confidence that everything will work out with enough time in America. No, it it doesn't have that in view at all. It has to do with the fact that Jesus is going to build his church. And so it's a gospel statement much more than it's a political statement. One of the things that I so appreciate about you, Jim, is, uh, and this just came to mind as you were, were talking, Jim does such an incredible job like loving everyone. He's one of the most large-hearted people that I know. And I just love the confidence that I have that if he's engaging anyone from any worldview, anyone who is lost in any particular sin, anyone who has any particular political perspective, like Jim's going to hug them and Jim's going to love them and Jim's going to take an interest in them. And there's something that's deeply Christ-like about about that. And so I thank God for you, Jim. Yeah. You read Trish's email beautifully right there, Jared. <laughs> um, any, uh, any questions from the floor? Yeah, that, that hand just shot up. Go ahead. Good. There's no way I'm going to be able to repeat all that, but, <laughs> but let, me, let, let me just summarize the actual heart of the question for the, for the recording. Uh, particularly with youth in mind, uh, where is the line for you to draw between like lovingly relating to and then eventually having to be defensive, having to defend truth? Where do you draw that line? How, how do you do that, particularly with youth in mind? All right, I'll just, just briefly, it's, I think it's a great question. And I think Jesus is the model force here where he brought grace and truth. And so I always think about that. But as you think of grace and truth, you also have to know yourself. Where do you tend to fall? Do you tend to be more of a grace person? I'm just going to bring grace here. I'm not going to rock the boat. I won't say anything. Or do you tend to be more of a truth person? So I would tend to be more of a truth. I want to like, you know, smash everyone black and white, you know, enemies of the gospel and do that. So I have to know that like those are my natural instincts. What does it look like to bring grace? I'm quicker to bring truth. And I've learned as an evangelist to bring grace because grace is so necessary. But you might be a grace person and you're in that high school. Somebody needs to speak up. Somebody needs to say the truth. Somebody needs to say, that's wrong. Somebody needs to say, the gospel can give you the hope that you're looking for. Not drugs, not being cool, not having likes on Facebook. So, so I think we all need grace and truth. We all need to bring grace and truth. And that's where even I was wondering in the beginning, are we more in danger of being too much on the grace side, too much in the Christian bubble side, too much in the isolated side? that we're not bringing truth and therefore we're not getting persecuted. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's part of it. Let me tack something on that might directly answer the question based on what you just said. So to how, where's that line? The first step in determining it is it's not always in the same place. It can vary from person to person. And we need to know ourselves and what, what we tend naturally to lead with and then balance that other with Christ-likeness. Okay. Um, I also I also do do think that uh, particular well you have youth in mind so let me speak particularly to that uh, teenagers that are here young people in college um, be prayerful be equipped to engage these things but be prayerful because 
where the line is in your sociology class on Tuesday may be a totally different place than your biology class on Thursday. All right? And we need to be led by the Spirit in these things. And so, so as you become equipped to know these things, also be prayerful so you're sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. All right, somebody else? Yes. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question because it was a thought I was going to say to this, but I totally left out. So the question is, uh, as a student, when it's time to kind of stand up for what the Bible says, anytime you, you reference the Bible or speak from the Bible, it's going to land as offensive. So how do you do that in a way that it doesn't? Well, the thing, here's the thing I was going to say is, is oftentimes when we become courageous in the public school settings or in culture broadly, we can often just become strong and not be wise in how we are courageous. Uh, It comes across as combative or arrogant or self-righteous. And so there has to be wisdom, carefulness in the how we take a stance so that, to, to your question, Liz, so that what offends them is truth and not how we've represented truth. Yeah. Yeah. Either you want to speak to that? No. No? All right. Uh, Lee, is that hand up back there? No, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to be observant. All right, go ahead. Let me see if I can summarize maybe the, the heart of that question. With, with, <laughs> uh, wanting to... To, to represent Christ courageously and in faith? How do we navigate the, uh, the nebulous nature of, 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 of engaging without offending or of, uh, of taking a stance, uh, even if it comes at a cost? Uh, and uh, while, especially the last thing you said there, David, while wanting to, to pursue the Christian unity that Jared has held out for us, how do we act courageously uh, in a in a time, you also indicated something that I want to capture on the recording and have you guys speak to, which is uh, in uh, a government setup that we have, where individual citizens can have governmental influence. How do we weigh that against Christian testimony? Go. Well, yeah. The, so the the part of the question that I was most intrigued by were that the question of how the church engages some issues that are clear moral issues in scripture is just one part that I wanted to speak to that where there is a clear word from God and those who have been in the church for any amount of time know we we as Christians and as a church must speak clearly on those issues and so God's word has a lot to say about the sanctity of human life God's word has a lot to say about ethnic harmony it's part of why we take the approach that we do each year of speaking to um, abortion and speaking to racism and ethnic harmony um, and why we have this context where we have talked about, you know, any number of issues, uh, you know, gender, LGBTQ, um, you know, these these Mm -hmm. sorts of things. So I think being faithful means speaking into these things was just a point that I wanted to, uh, you know, to ensure is is made from that. So So, for example, a church... In the in the past, you know, during times of of slavery, that didn't speak to. There are some justice issues that are so pronounced that the church fails if she does not speak 
to those issues um, and at times take appropriate action in those issues. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's it. Um, the church is to be engaged in seeking justice. And it's a function of Christian love to seek the good of the, the society in which we live and where we have um, the, uh, the ability to vote and the ability to influence the political process, then we ought to, you know, we encourage Christians to, uh, to, to be engaged rather than to be disengaged and, and ignorant of those things. Yeah, let me just say very quickly, one statement you made about the church and slavery and these, these, these issues of justice or injustice. Um, I kind of reject the broad brush, uh, quick summaries of history. Uh, if you go back, uh, there were large parts, particularly of the church in the South, that were very quiet and large parts of the church in the North that were very noisy about slavery. And so, um, so I just, we, have, we have to be really careful when going back that we allow the, the nuance and the complications of history to not be washed away uh, and realize that there were Christians boldly speaking out against slavery from its earliest days in the States. And other issues like that. Let me take one more question and then we'll yeah. close the evening. Yeah, the question was about uh, book recommendations oh, yeah. or resources that we would read. Part of the reason that I use quotes in a teaching like this uh, and in other teachings I've done is to recommend resources. Mm -hmm. So wherever I'm quoting someone, it's not just like, here's a good quote in an awful book and a terrible article or whatever. <laughs> it's, like, it's like I'm pointing people to where to go um, for, for deeper study. And so some of the resources that I mentioned, the, the uh, Thaddeus Williams book, uh, the Carl Truman book, those are great in understanding the cultural moment. Um, the, uh, the Christopher Watkin book, um, D.A. Carson's Christ and Culture Revisit, all these things help to, to provide a framework for engaging culture that will be valuable. Some of it is if you're, you know, do you have a particular resource on this topic uh, or this value of engaging? Because it's it can be quite broad. Um, and, and those resources that I mentioned are probably more, um, some of them are more con conceptual. Um, and so, yeah, and I know that you're, you know, an avid reader who has probably read a number of the, the books that we would recommend. But we do seek to, one of the reasons that we look to recommend books a lot is to uh, minimize the reading of bad books as well without calling it with, so you won't hear us often say like, here's a bad book. Um, but our goal in holding up the good books is so fewer people will read the bad books, um, which I, um, I read both and, uh, and then commend the good ones. If, 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 if they just had budget for one book, correct me publicly here if you yeah. wouldn't agree with what I'm about to say. Uh, I think contemporarily Strange New World is a great, a great book. Yeah. To, that yes. It captures our times really well yeah. in pretty, you know, not, not the thicker book, yes. the, the, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self yeah. is much more philosophical in nature. But Strange New World is a reduction of that thicker book, which is much more accessible. Yes. That's absolutely right. That's the Carl Truman book he's been talking yes. about. Yes, and what Carl Truman, so uh, Truman can write some things that have a little bit of a punch to him at times, uh, it, just in terms of, you know, uh, blog posts and things like that. But he's a good, he's a really good writer and he's a, he's a wonderful thinker. That book has been received sort of across from a wide range of people as a helpful resource. And in, in his published books in particular, he's, not, he's, he's modeling the sort of peaceful uh, you know, spirit and, and a gracious manner of, of engagement that, uh, that was reflected in the quote that I shared earlier. Yes, that's a great book.
Good, folks. We'll hang around for a little bit if you didn't get a chance to, or didn't prefer to ask your question publicly. Uh, thank you for coming out on a Sunday night uh, to these meetings. Our next one is March 19, where we will talk about the church and gender roles. Uh, so the, uh, come on out for that. That'll begin at 7 o'clock on March 19. Let me just close our night in prayer. Lord, as we think broadly about our culture and broadly about the church, I do pray as, as we leave this place, our first thoughts would be personal with us and you. Lord, would you cause us to not apply this to the evangelical church before we apply these things to ourselves? Would you take us individually before the mirror of your word and show us where we need to be adjusted by you? So that as we engage on a larger scale, we're doing it in a way that not just stands for the truth you've revealed, but does it in the way you've commanded. Would help us to have a personal testimony that reflects the character of Jesus until the day you return. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming, guys.